0: insuppressible voice of Brendan Behan in the first scene of The Queer Fellow, singing a song that he may not have written but that he certainly made famous. In the background were prison noises for Brendan, as is well known, spent a part of his life in prison. He was, you might almost say, born to go to jail as others are born to rule, born into the republican movement as others are born to riches. But his republicanism gave him more than just a series of jail sentences. It gave him, which is often forgotten, song and story and passion, community, identity and a sense of purpose. It gave him also a mythology, which might be counted riches beyond price for a writer. When you add that Brendan's large, immediate family on both or all sides contained people of extraordinary warmth, eccentricity and talent, You can see, I think, that the stereotype of the working-class lad from the slums who had to fight his way into the light won't wash. His story contains moments of apparently great triumph and hours and days of seeming debasement and sordidity which even yet hardly bear description. But whatever else Brendan may or may not have had, in some respects anyway, he had a head start. Cahill Goulding remembers.
1: I remember Brendan, I suppose, uh, in the... I suppose in the around about 1926 or 27 like you know we're both born I suppose within a month or so of each other in 1923 and uh, like we lived in Summer Street at the time which is not far away they lived in Russell Street and because both our fathers and mothers were involved in some way with the national movement at the time and had both been in jail together uh, we kind of well we had contact with each other other from a very early age and um, it wasn't unusual for him to come down and stay with us maybe for two or three days and meet to stay with him, you know. And, like, you, you as you said, like, you don't want to hear that more about certain aspects of the confirmation suit and his granny and all that. But uh, um, I knew all that, all the family, like, you know, the half-brothers of his father and uh, his own half-brothers, like the Furlongs. Uh, his father's people were, uh, or his father's half-brothers were, the, were known as English, like, that's what the name had, the English and that and um, they were all uh, a very entertaining crowd. I found all the time his granny was there. Uh, well, you've heard enough about her and uh, the jugs of water. She used to send us for the the drink to gills in the enamel jug and we used to have our cut out of it before we came home and went into the backyard in the tenement house and filled it up with water and brought the rest up to her. But uh, that's the kind of, like, um, there was, uh, then we joined the Fianna together, we were in the Fianna and uh, he was um, always showed, if you like, a, 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 a tremendous ability to write and to be able to put things together. And he was very witty, as you know, like he had a tremendous wit altogether. And even when he was about 12 years of age, we had a magazine at that time called Fianna, in the Fianna in the Fianna. And uh, he used to write articles and poems for it, you know. and. Um, He used to write also for other radical papers. There was one paper called, uh, I think it was called the Dublin Worker or something. It was one of these papers that sprang up around about the early 30s, uh, about 1935 or so. It was uh, in in Dublin. Some unemployed paper or semi-communist party paper or something like that, you see, and he he used to have uh, uh, stuff in that too. But he was always interested in writing and always wanted and intended to be a writer. He never was very interested in anything else, although uh, he had um, ability to do other things as well. For instance, he was a good tradesman, in spite of what other people thought. uh, If he wanted to do a thing, he could do it. And um, in the tech, we went to the tech together. Like, um, we started off working uh, uh, to serve our time as painters together. And um, we both got a scholarship to the the technical school, a trade scholarship. And we got two years. in, the, in Bolton Street Technical School, in the, in, in the, in the painting uh, uh, section. And we were paid, I remember we got six shillings a week, for the first week, or for the first year, and uh, then we were to get eight shillings a week for the second year. But well, we never reached the second year. We were thrown out after the first year.
0: We were dismissed with ignominy. Among others who remember aspects of the young Brendan and his Republican background are Bob Bradshaw, Ernest Gabler, and Matty O'Neill.
2: Well, uh, I, uh, about 1933, I, I went into Digs with old Mrs. Furlong in, in 32 North Great Charles Street, and uh, that's where I first met Brendan. You see, her son was first married to a Brendan's mother Jack, who died. Uh, he was a 1916 man. It was that kind of house. It was, in fact, an undercover IRA house, anyway. And the Beans just lived across the way. And Emily, that was Mrs. Furlong's daughter, uh, used to bring him in on occasions and the first time he came in, I suppose he, perhaps he was about nine years old, I've forgotten exactly, it was something like that. And uh, he, he, he made a very good impression on me the first time, I must say. He was a very handsome boy, very, very shy, and very, very bright. Bright to look at as well as in his uh, shy talk. You know? And uh, <coughs> that horse had a, a very good early effect on him. Uh, much of his republicanism, of course, uh, apart from Stephen and Kathleen, it, it came from there because the, there were a lot of people in the house, I suppose about you know half the adults, half the males anyway, would have been wanted by somebody somewhere for something. And uh, the other half, they would have been regarded as revolutionary eccentrics of one kind or the other. And uh, Brendan, when he would arrive, uh, he was always very interested and the adults, they mostly had tales to tell, and some of them were, didn't require too much coaxing to tell their tales. Also, there was a certain amount of, uh, I don't know what it would be like these days in, in a similar environment, you know. but there was always a lot of books around, um, uh, of all kinds, not merely political, and there was a very strong musical culture, for instance, there were at least five uh, musical instruments in the house and Emily was a music teacher and for instance while I was there I, I learned to play a piano and two other instruments as a matter of fact I don't say I played them very well but I certainly could knock uh, many tunes out of all of them and practically everybody else in the house played something and, and some played two or three like myself and uh, you know the musical culture of, of of the beans is quite considerable I never met a bean who was not interested in song and music I never heard of one
3: I first met Brendan when he was quite a a small boy well he's small to me because I'm about ten years older than Brendan Uh, at the time in the early 30s there was something in Dublin called the Republican Congress many of us belonged to it and one offshoot of the Republican Congress as far as I remember was that some of us would go down into places like Dominic Street and try and persuade the people not to pay their rent until certain things were done. And uh, one day, uh, myself and somebody else, I forget whether it was a man named John Clare, who was was a poet and who drowned, I think it was somebody like that, we went down and we were trying to persuade uh, some woman in a house who was looking around the corner of a door not to pay her rent until she got the lavatory fixed or something like that. And this voice said from the landing, Oh, geez, you won't get them to stop paying the rent, or words to this effect. This was a boy of about 10 uh, who uh, told us a lot more about uh, what went on there and uh, how we were quite wasting our time. Sometime later, we were going swimming up to Broombridge in Cabra. When he saw us swimming, uh, some of us belonged to the Dublin Swimming Club and were quite good swimmers. He wanted to uh, learn uh, the thing which was the thing to do in swimming called the Australian Crawl. He said to me once, um, Hey, what do you do? I said, I I don't do anything. Uh, I'm, I'm practicing to be a writer. And he said, You don't practice to be a writer. You're a writer. And I said to him, Well, go on, throw yourself in the water then and swim without practicing. And he said, Oh, well, that's different. But he often mentioned this thing about being a writer, and it seemed uh, to be something very interesting and odd to him. Of course, which I knew nothing about his background, his, you know, his family or his father, anything like that uh, at the time. But I do remember that little conversation took place, and it sort of stuck in the mind.
4: Uh, Brendan and I probably joined a fan about the, right, the same time. Uh, about 1930, but uh, I was on the south side and we had a hall in Grand Canal Street, whereas Brandon's hall would have been uh, the old Hardwick Hall on the north side. Uh, because of this, I had frequently... Many many of my friends knew Brandon, and I'd, I'd uh, heard him described. They thought him, even at that time, a great character, and there was quite a lot of talk about him. So that uh, when I... Uh, I was in a house up in Spartan Road, Seely's. It was a well-known Republican house at the time. A couple of them were interned, and the mother was a great Republican. But uh, there was a couple of us sitting in the house when a daughter of the uh, Mrs. Seely, Gurley came in, and she said Brendan Bean was at the door. And uh, Brendan arrived in. Uh, I always remembered his uh, how he looked. He looked uh, very bedraggled, and very thin. Uh, he wore a, a a fawn, a loose fawn overcoat. Uh, he, he, without, uh, almost immediately, he, he he was involved. I don't remember what he said, but I remember that almost immediately he was describing his exploits uh, in Britain, uh, how he had been uh, arrested and his trial. That was hilarious how he described that. And. Uh, how he allegedly was being attacked by the mob over there. but uh, I was very impressed. I never forgot that first meeting. And uh, I talked to him immediately. I felt uh, some affection for him.
0: Whatever his virtues and whatever his failings, Brendan's abundant talents were always apparent. Indeed, you might say that many of them were on constant open display. Among them was a gift for serio comic acting, which, like much else that he possessed, would have made the fortune of a lesser mortal. Carl Goulding remembers an incident during internment in the Curragh camp.
1: I remember too, like say, in the glass house in, uh, in the Curragh in just at the end of the 40s, uh, when he was in a cell, you know, he had the dirtiest cell in the place. He was the most untidy man you ever met. And he was up to every fiddle like that he could possibly get, you know. Uh, he had about two pints of milk a day from the doctor and... Uh, he had all classes of vitamin tablets and things like that, which he never used you know in fact, the points of milk were taken down to a cell and after a couple of days they were green mouldy because he never threw them out and he never rinsed out the mug anyway there was a a captain there that uh, the army uh, it was an army detention barracks we were in and the captain that was one of the captains was the duty captains was on the morning he came into being and being was lying down on a set on, a, on the bed and the blankets tossed all over the place and the piss pot not emptied and the floor unswept and the, a couple of mugs on the table with green mouldy on the top of the milk and stale bread all over the floor and everything. So the officer took a look around the cell and he started off giving, bringing down the banks for this filthy cell. He says that the cell is filthy, it's untidy and that's the worst cell in the place. So Ben was lying down on the bed with no laces in his boots and he, one leg crossed on the other and he's slipping the heel of his boot off the heel and no socks, you see. And he looks up at the calf and next thing he bursts into tears. And he was a great actor, Brendan, too. And, uh he just took the officer back a minute and then he blurted out, like, you know, say, you're always on to me, says to the officer. You've been always persecuting me since you heard I was an illegitimate, you see. So the officer was in the desk, he thought he really was an illegitimate. <laughs> so he, uh he, he, got all, he got away and he obviously got out, as the said, anyway. But ever after that, any time being one thing that happened, we used to get handballs from the from the, 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 from the from the prison authorities like to play handball. Used to supply us with handballs, but the handballs used to last very long because the old shed we played the handball in had these iron rafters across the, the, the roof. And with the ball walloping off, it would only last a couple of days. So we'd it would be torn into bits. And we'd probably be a week without a ball or maybe two weeks without a ball until we get another one. But ever after that, you see, whenever we wanted a ball, we got Bean to go up and ask this captain, and he always ran out and got a ball immediately for Bean To show him like that, he really had nothing against him.
0: But even here, in what you might call the comparative peace and safety of the Curragh camp and political involvement, the shadow of destiny was apparent. Brendan's destiny and his doom lay in wanting to be a writer, to be with writers, to enter a world which every young aspirant imagines to be one of greater freedom and self-fulfillment. Talented as he was, rich as he was, later on he would pay a heavy price for entrance, but it would not be the one price that is really demanded. Yeah, he he, he was,
4: it was all uh, writing, this was his life, you know, and he wanted to write and he wanted to be with writers and... Uh, uh, he, he liked to speak to Martin o'Kyan he was a bit hurt at the time uh, Martin was a bit of a dispute in the court of. Martin uh, had written a document at the time which uh, some people might regard as a bit right wing but it was certainly uh, uh, a bit moderating in the sense that it wasn't uh, absolutely uh, fully in favour of unqualified physical force uh, Brendan didn't agree with this and I remember a bit of a, a an argument, civilized argument between himself and Martin and uh, uh Brandon, saying that republicanism hadn't been given a proper trial and uh, quoting the, the the French authorities on the republican idea of government. But I think uh, he was a bit put out to have had this uh, slight difference with Martin because he got the worse of the argument. Uh, Martin, uh, well, he was intellectually superior to Brandon and he was certainly much more learned. ...than Brandon in these matters.
0: But whatever way we look at it, and whatever it gave him... ...Brendan had paid a pretty high price for his republicanism too.
4: Well, you
1: see, I saw most of them say, from the time... ...as I said, we were about three or four years of age... ...or maybe earlier, up to the time we were about, say, 17 or 18... ...and he uh, went to England and he, got, he was sentenced to three years in England... three years Barcelona, England, and I was here and I was sentenced to a year's imprisonment here, and then like, I was subsequently interned in the Curragh. And when he came back from England, uh, he was arrested over this thing in Glasnevin, and he came down to the he Well, he first of all went to Mount Joy, and then he was transferred to Arbor Hill and eventually down to the Curragh.
0: On his release from the Curragh, Brendan was done with jails. He was also done with active militant republicanism. And we must remember that his involvement with that had been nearly as individual as his involvement with everything else. But, of course, he wouldn't let go. He never quite let go of anything that was a claim to fame or notice. In every man of extraordinary talents, the vocations and the interests struggle for mastery. In Brendan's case, it was a crowd scene, turbulent and unruly. The struggle was confused and, to the end, I think, unresolved. Here is Desmond McNamara.
5: Well, I first met him at the age of 16 when he was a young Fianna boy carrying a banner up O'Connell Street. He was yelling out, old boots for China, free milk for Spain. And then he pretty well disappeared out of my life uh, into, over to Liverpool, into Borsal, out of it again. I knew a little of his, uh, his behaviour when I was away. Uh, when he was away... Then he disappeared again into some Irish dungeon or other, and it was on his release from the Curragh, or Arbour Hill, or wherever he was, that he began to take an interest. It occurred to him for the first time that his his world was a literary world. Before that, he wouldn't have dared, he wouldn't have thought of it. I think then he, 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 he first thought of that, and... He started to fill himself in on things that he didn't know. When I say that he lived in a literary world, others' that his interests were literary, I think I mean that he saw this as the easiest opening for him. It excited him more than others. It was possible for him to do, or possible for him to face, or attempt. It also appealed to his egotism. It's possible to exist as a literary personality in Dublin, or indeed in, in, anywhere else, uh, on uh, on hope and, uh, and bombast and uh, whatever you like to call it.
0: And John Ryan, who played a large part in Brendan's Indeed in All Our Dooms and Destinies.
6: I first met uh, Brendan Bean way back in about 1943, I used to have a studio in Grafton Street. I uh, wasn't long out of school and I was going to the College of Art. But I had a little studio in Grafton Street next door to an, a studio owned by Des McNamara. Now, Mac was a famous papier-mâché um, artist. In fact, uh, he's since written a book about the subject. But uh, he knew Brandon from the old days. I think they were in the socialist movement together as boys. And... Um, I used to meet him in the studio, and I believe in those days he was actually on the run. It was between the time he was released from Borstal in England and uh, before he was interned in the Currie again, it was during that brief period I met him. And then I met him subsequently after the release, the, the internees, in around about, I think, 46. I believe he was one of the last to be released, actually. And then off and on, I was meeting him up until the time uh, I founded Envoy in 1949. In fact, I, by that time I knew him very well. He was then, to me, not—I didn't think it, at all of him in terms as a writer. He was a kind of a a, bouleva- a Dublin boulevardier, uh, a drinker, a raconteur, a character. Uh, and he was—he to give him his due—he was a genuine character. Drunks are often confused with characters in Dublin, but he—he he genuinely was a character.
0: So now there were two very definite vocations, or shall we call them, possible ways to a sort of half-glimpsed, happy self-fulfillment, the writer and the character, contending for mastery within him. They were to be the dominant ones from now on, and I think it is not too much to say that the struggle between them destroyed their possessor.
5: Did he want to be a personality or a writer? I think the two were together in his mind. Uh, One was a means to the other. I think that Brendan's Main drives to his life was his, uh, as he said to me, uh, and perhaps to other people, his enormous egotism that drove him and drove him and drove him. Two things he, he boasted about: his egotism, and the greatest egotist in Ireland, or in Western Europe, and uh, his egotism, and also something that he used to describe as pride. I'm not sure what he meant by that. Uh, the pride to stand upright, the pride to the pride to do what he wanted to do. Pride was never defined, uh, theologically. But to him it it was the difference between uh, going back to a trade uh, uh, and standing up and uh, and moving among other people who were unfamiliar and fitting in with it. He was escaping from work uh, or from his daily life, uh, which he didn't like. Who would? He was a house painter. Uh, He had no wish to live in Kimmage. He was fond of his family after his fashion. He had no wish to to hammer in a, a ceiling with a stock
6: brush.
0: But about his seriousness as a writer, there were then, as there are even now, two schools of thought.
6: It was only very late in the day when I discovered that he had ambitions to be a writer as well. I think, really, that these ambitions came to him merely because he felt he should be doing something Everybody else in McDade's was at, was at some sort of artistic uh, thing. So he felt terribly out of it. But if it hadn't been for this, I can well imagine he'd have been perfectly satisfied being any other thing that was, was, was all the, r- the rage at that time. But, um, because, this, as I say, this uh, thing of writing came very late in the day. Well, I remember, first of all, he had a friend called Sean Daly. He was an extraordinarily tall fellow who had, who had eyes like a goat and he arrived one day with a, um, an enormous manuscript. This is in the offices of Envoy, which were where the old studio was. And he arrived with a thing on an immense roll of toilet paper, which he said was a translation from Pushkin. And the next thing I knew was that Brendan himself arrived uh, uh, with, the, with the manuscript too, which I read, and to my surprise, I found it was quite good. And, um, it was a short story called A Woman of No Standing. And indeed, I liked it so much that I printed it.
0: And yet we must not underestimate Brendan's own ambitions.
2: They were very large, uh, I'm certain, because I remember walking along Nassau Street with him, just there uh, uh, beyond Dawson Street, late one night. I don't know where we were going. But we were going up to Eamon Koslo's Studio, which is just up there. It was in one of the places McNamara used to go to. Anyway, he was talking about his intention of writing, and he said to me, he was doing some work for the Irish press at the time, I think. He, I remember him saying, which wasn't the kind of thing he tended to say, he said, if you knew my real ambitions, uh, it would frighten you. He said, you'd be, qu- you'd be frightened if you knew what my ambitions are. And uh, I-, I could see he meant it all right.
0: But young, largely unpublished writers are unconvincing by nature. Nobody believes in them, least of all themselves. And there was, I think, something specially unconvincing about Brendan, perhaps to himself, certainly even to me, who loved him and spent many days with him discussing these matters. I knew at that stage that he was a genius, weren't we all? But what was he besides?
3: Brendan was indeed one of the most enormously talented people that you could ever come across, in, in every sort of a way, but it was completely almost potential. It was undeveloped and undisciplined and unchanneled. I mean, in the European disciplined way of art, of sitting down, of working and working your way through and of sacrificing yourself to the thing you're doing, he didn't have this because of, well, the heritage of the country. The writing, again, is not writing, it's speaking. Uh, Think of Lenny Bruce, who was again a speaker and not a writer. If if Brendan, say, had been born Jewish in New York, he would have had an enormous career uh, as a sort of Lenny Bruce, uh, nightclub entertainer, television. He would have become like Jackie Gleason.
0: It is from this time in their own youth as well as his that many people cherish their happiest memories of Brendan. Here is Beverly Walsh.
7: A couple of years later, when I went to Kerry, I, I was the first person to take Brendan to Kerry. Um, Brendan didn't want to come because it was in the country. This is digressing slightly, but it, it, its uh, he was afraid of the country. He didn't quite know what the country would hold for him. and We went down in the train, and as we progressed farther and farther into the country, Brendan sat shivering in the corner of the carriage and said, Oh, I've never been in the country so bad before. I don't like it at all. What attracted me to Brendan um, in the first place and, and what, in my memory, I shall always remember of him, um, and what moved me most about him was, was his great mind-hunger. And al- although I think he was genuinely afraid or nervous o- o- of this new environment, the the rural environment, nevertheless, he he, he went around closely looking at everything, the leaves... Literally, the leaves, the grass, the sea. We were fortunate in 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 being on the coast, a lovely piece of wild coastline, um, just off cahadaniel And he was interested in in the insects, and particularly the fuchsia beetle. Um, he discovered the fuchsia beetle, a beetle that that's pink on the top and green underneath, the most beautiful thing. And he wrote a poem about it. And He'd do the most extraordinary things. He'd get up at three and four in the morning and knock on our door and say, come for a swim, and we'd walk down the lanes. And it was summer, and as you know, in the summer, between three and four, there's, well, Dawn's rosy-tipped finger, and it was absolutely exquisite, and and Brendan would be in an ecstasy. And we'd walk down, and we'd swim. And then they'd come back, and, and... There'd be another poem about the swim and about the beach and, and about the the extraordinary local flora on the beach there's some beautiful sea flowers green and blue sea, sea flowers on the beach and, and brendan would write about these he was obsessed by this mind hunger and this is what i loved most about him
2: no matter what kind of a worrying, frustrating, bad February day it was. Uh, th- there was always a kind of magic about it when you stopped and went in for one. you have know, been be for an hour and a half. there be songs, stories, chat, malicious humour of every kind and a kind of magic always uh,
0: ensued. And Benedict Kiley, to whom I introduced him one penniless day in Stevens Green, if introduced, is what you did with Brendan. They had that immediate
8: sort of contact with people. You know, just great human sympathy and, and understanding, which I think probably burned them out. I have, never, I have never laughed, or never will again, I'm afraid, in my life, as I have laughed with Brendan when he would... I remember him telling the story with infinite elaborations, every one of them, of course, completely untrue, about how President Cosgrove went to see the Pope and it was one, I think he has some adumbration of this story in one of his books, but the original story, as he told it, was a real howl. Well, Brendan O'Hare and myself listened to him and Sean White until we fell on the floor. It was the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life, and I don't think I'll ever laugh like that again.
3: The next meeting happened in the, in the same odd way, in that uh, Gaynor Christ, uh, who's the man in Don Levy's book, The Ginger Man... I uh, was married to a woman from the North of Ireland, I think she was Parson's daughter. Anyhow, she was standing on O'Connell Street one day, waiting for a bus to go up to Cabra, to, to have some lunch in my father's house with my father and mother and, and me and other yeah. people. And along came Long along the street, and saw her and said, what, is, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm going up to Ernie Gabler's house, because uh, i are going to have some lunch there. And he said, oh, I know that fecker, you know, so I'll go up there too. So whatever happened, he landed up there. So anyhow, he had just come back this time, in fact, from some walk around France uh, with Tony Cronin, in fact. N- uh, the, the famous uh, thing where they joined the pilgrimage and carried the cross, and when they got up to the top of the, uh, of the queue, they <laughs> almost felt faint before it was their turn to take the cross, and they were carried into the first aid station, and they got brandy and sandwiches, and then they joined the back of the queue and worked their way up again. The band, it was quite a hilarious story. Brendan, in fact, was telling this story and others for about four hours in this uh, little house in Cabra with the window open on a summer day. And one day we looked out and the entire garden was full of people, including the postman who had come to post to deliver a letter at 12 o'clock and was still there at, at half past three. And indeed, I remember saying to him at that time, you know, if you could get a tape recorder, if you could just write the way you talk, that would be your salvation.
0: The ominous tape recorder, which occurred to many people in those days, has cast its shadow before it. But at that time, if people thought of it at all, it was happily, as a way of capturing a talent for comic inventiveness that seemed boundless and inexhaustible. Here is Alan Simpson.
9: One of my most vivid memories of him was a night, and I can't tell you when it was, it was a hell of a long time ago, it was a night in the old... Catholic Stage Guild or Theatre Club, I can't remember, it was up in Gardner Place. And we were all drinking there, and in the company was Brendan and Joe Locke, Joseph Locke, singer, Joe McLaughlin. And they started a sort of competition between them as to who could top the other in um, entertaining the rest of us. I've never seen anything like it, and he he had this trick, I'm sure you saw him do it, of uh, putting his coat up over his head and being an old an old woman. And uh, oh, I don't know. he, he they they kind of did impressions of one another, and I can't remember the actual details of it, but I do remember that it was a, it was a vivid thing in in my memory, like seeing some great artist. I mean, my father told me of how he went to see Henry Irving in the Gallery of the Gaiety. And this stands out in my mind. I can't remember what exactly Brendan did, but I remember that it was one of my most exciting nights. And this was long before, I'm sure, he wrote uh,
0: The Queer Fellow. Yes, Brendan, as impromptu performer and entertainer was, in those days, an incomparable joy. Of course, he wasn't always trying to be funny. That would have been intolerable. He could, depending on the company, be serious, reflective, Discursive or even quite informative, and he had a marvelous line in plain, old fashioned music hall in consequentiality, backed up with song. But with all this being said about him, I think perhaps it's time we heard from the man himself.
10: Well, I don't know what to say, except I absolutely must decline to dance in the streets while Gertrude's dying. And as for Alice B. Chocolats, I'd sooner Shakespeare and a great big box of chocolates. That really belongs to Gertrude Stein. She said when she was dying, what is the answer? But then she said, what is the question? This uh, song was written by a brother of my mother's, and I understand featured in an, an American film called West of the Rio Grande. But who ever hears the song? it was down by the glenside side i met an old woman a plucking young nettles and she ne'er saw me coming i listened a while to the song that she was humming. Glory, oh, glory, oh, to the bold Fenian men. The Fenians, incidentally, were an Irish revolutionary organisation that was formed in New York, of all places. Good job McCarthy wasn't knocking round. On the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day, 1858, soldiers from Both sides in the American Civil War came home to Ireland to fight in the Rising. And uh, peculiarly enough, people who'd fought on the Union side, well, of course, predominated, but there were also a few on the Confederate side, and they seemed to get on pretty well. They wrote a song called God Save Ireland, said the heroes, God Save Ireland, say we all. Whether on the scaffold high or the battlefield, we die. Sure, no matter when, for Ireland's day, we fall. Which is the tune of, I I, I think, a union song called Tramp, 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 The buys our Magic. Personally, I probably favour the union side, but I wasn't alive at the time, so neither were you, so it's not much odds one way or the other. But um, the Fenians were largely offered by men of the American armies It goes against my grain to admit that some of them were from the south, but they were. And uh, one of the greatest feelings came from Richmond, Virginia. As I say in Dublin, carry on with the coffin for the corpse would walk. Tis fifty long years since I saw the moon beaming On brave manly forums and eyes with hope gleaming I see them again through all my daydreaming. dream me oh, Glorio oh, Glorio to the old pigeon men He she rode the chariot and I reckon fastly old octan ball speech and tailor of the wall we canan quail Agpa fi of oban bors to the bold Finian man. Well, I think that was done pretty well considered. And now I will put on my best musical accents. I would like to sing you his favorite song. I do see if I can
9: remember
10: it. Of oh, give me the land where the bright yellow sun go gliding down to the sea, where the golden white swans go gliding along like a maid in a heavenly dream. But I would not exchange my home on the range for all of your cities so gay. Home, home on the range. The deer and the ants elders on his head and discouraging words and the skies are not cloudy all day. I wish I knew more of that
0: talk about the various strains in our tradition and strands in our culture. There are some of them, including what I think we should call a rendering of an American song as it must have been sung on the north side of Dublin in the days of its first popularity, or would have been if everybody could sing like Brendan Behan. Actually, that recording was made in the days of fame, and therefore, after the time of which we have just been speaking, but it gives a fair impression of the Brendan that many people remember from that time. Still, in the life of every writer of any sort, there comes a stage when he needs serious acknowledgement of the fact that he is a fellow writer from others whom he respects, perhaps when he hasn't even anything to show which would entitle him to it. Brendan Behan had now arrived at this point, and I think he felt so keenly the absence of acknowledgement from some sources including perhaps myself, that he was afterwards to carry into the broad plains and possibilities of fame the bitterness of what he felt to be unwarranted dismissals by his friends and others at this stage of his development. John Ryan was not amongst those who dismissed him out of hand. Indeed, he published him, which was more than others would do. But what he says reflects a general attitude.
6: I didn't take him terribly seriously because I felt at that stage he was... He was really only doing it because it was the dumb thing. Uh, I think later he did take himself seriously, when he thought that he might be thought highly of. He, then he began to take himself very seriously, which, was, which is a great mistake, of course. Um, Patrick Kavanagh didn't take him very seriously, which annoyed him very much, I think. Um, and this, this compelled him uh, to prove that he, wa- he was a writer.
3: He took himself very seriously as a writer because he took himself very seriously, full stop. He, he thought that he was one of God's unique creations. Of course he did. Most men of talent do, and they have to do to get through. But he, because of all the other things, the background, he, he had this quite enormous ego, uh, which, of course, was built up by his granny and, and his family and all the, on all the rest of it because he was
0: the bright boy, the one who could talk and sing and all the rest of it. Actually, Brendan was now on the verge of being a writer of a sort who was more than acknowledged, more than celebrated, more than praised. But he was also on the verge of something else important in a man's life.
11: I suppose it would have been round the 40s, 45, 46, when I first saw Brendan. He was out drinking wet time money with my father, Cecil, down in a pub called O'Shea's in Donnybrook. And they came back and adjourned to my grandmother's house That would have been the first time I ever saw him. He was not long, I'd say, out of the Curragh at the time. I didn't say very much, though he said afterwards that I was rude, but I was a very shy person. I was 17 or 18 at the time. But uh, he did make an impression on me. Well, he was always writing uh, all his life, but I wasn't aware of the fact that he had been writing anything. So I didn't see him again then for a long time until, I suppose, the 50s would have been 10 years nearly. And I went to the Iron Islands again with my father and a cousin of mine. And we stayed <coughs> in a very hospitable house called Mur- belonging to Moira Keneally on Inish Moor. And one day she arranged that we go on a picnic to Inish Ear. So there was a whole crowd of us staying in the guest house, and we hired a trawler for the day. And we took off for Innish And Maura Keneally said, we'll, we'll bring our sandwiches because there isn't, there isn't much, there is no hotel really there. So we'll bring all our stuff. And she said, there's one thing we must bring with us. And I said, what's that, Maura? And she said, oh, she said, we'll have to bring Brendan Behan's typewriter. So I said, Brendan Behan, oh, yes, I said, he's the writer. And she said, yes. He was staying on Inish Moor, and he got into some trouble with the police here. And he's not allowed land on Inish Moor. So we'll bring him over his typewriter. So we set forth on the picnic, with our packed lunches and Brendan Bean's typewriter. And then we arrived on the island, and uh, Corricks brought us in, and we went into um, Sean Forther's pub. And it was dark. It was the first time I'd ever been on Inishere. It was a dark little pub, and uh, I don't think Brendan was in it when we went in first. There were a few of the local lads in it, and then Brendan appeared, and he bought drinks, and there was an old man there called Andrew Marr, who had been um, he'd been teaching Sing Irish, and I remember him reciting a long poem, half in English and half in Irish. It was very, a very good day, so Brendan eventually, we gave him the typewriter, and the time came. We spent we walked around the island, myself and my cousin, and we had to swim, and then Brendan decided that he'd come back to Inishmore with us, because we were having a party. So we went off on the trawler and Brendan was he was, you know, fairly well jarred and he got into a political discussion with my cousin who was a refugee from Romania and she was you know, she'd never quite met anything like this and I think she was a little bit frightened because it was very rough and the boat was rolling from side to side and Brendan was getting more and more vociferous about the Russians and so on you know. So eventually <coughs> we arrived back at Inishmore and uh We had the party and Brendan sang all night and uh, he stayed the night. Party finished about five and I went off to bed. And I think it was the end of the holiday, the following day. Oh yeah, the following day, it must have been the last day we had because we all went for a swim and Brendan swam across the harbour in uh, Kilmoravy, which is quite a swim and my cousin, he wanted to see who would who would be the best swimmer? So she beat him at it. So he did his famous trick. He used to call the sights the Tasponces Connemara, where he turned upside down in the water, particularly when he wasn't wearing any togs. And the, the islanders used to all sit out and give him a great cheer for this. So the next day, anyhow, we went off, and uh, we went down to Kilronan, and one of the, <coughs> I think it was Stephon, took us down to the, to the boat, and he was putting my bags. Uh, down onto the boat and he said to me Beatrice he said isn't it grand for you and I said why Stefania so I was kind of sad the holiday was over and he says it's grand for you he said you'll come back to Dublin and you'll see Brendan being I think I saw him next up in a flat belonging to art students John French and Roger Shackleton there was a party one night there and Brendan arrived in and he had, uh, he'd had he had a bit of a row with these lads because he said the people that owned the flat had given him the key and they'd robbed the key off him. Well, now, I, they said they hadn't, but I don't know the true story of it anyway. So he was a bit cross with them and he came in and he sang very well that night, but I remember noticing that his hand was bandaged, whether he'd had a row or what, I don't know. So uh, I didn't see him again then, I suppose, for another few years. and the Queer fellow came on down in the Pike Theatre. So I went down to see it. My father came down with me, I forget now who else was there. But Brendan came down, it may have been the last night of the show, and he invited us out for a drink. And we went down to um, the Eagle Bar down on the Keys, which was a sort of all-night drinking place, and we had a few drinks there. And then we went home, and then he said to me, um, well, would you not consider coming out some evening? So I said yes. I would. So we went out, and we had a few drinks out in Ryan's that was down in um, East James Street. And we went to a race meeting. This would have been around 54, Mm -hmm. the autumn of 54. So uh, we went out to the races (coughs) in um, Leopardstown. And there we met Liam O'Flaherty. I think was a bit amazed to see the two of us together. However, he, we had a drink with them, and we walked home then, got a bus home. And uh, we went to one or two shows down in... Um, Madame Cogley was running her theatre at the time. And we went to the Pike, we went to see um, Waiting for Godot, which Brendan interrupted successfully a few times. And, um... Then he said, well, I was... Going round with another lad at the time, and he said, "Look, he said, you're not really cut out for the nine to five, lark, you know." So I said, "Well, I suppose I'm not." He said, "I think you'd do better off with me." And he said, "I'm working for the at the time he was doing the, the Irish Press articles, uh, on a Saturday." And he said, "Sure, let's go off," he said, "down to France now. I'll get a, I'll write a few articles and we go off." Well, I said, "What about get married? Like, is that does that not come into it at all?" So
10: he said, well, of course, if you want all that, he said, I suppose so, yeah. I will give you a golden ball to hop with the children in the hall If you'll marry, 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 if you'll marry me I will give you the keys of my chest and all the money that I possess If you'll marry, 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 if you'll marry me I will give you a watch and chain To show the children in the lane If you'll marry, 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 marry If you'll marry me I will give you kinds of gold And as much and more as your hands can hold If you'll marry, 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 marry If you'll marry me So
11: I was working in the museum at the time and he, Brendan, the only condition he made about it was that I tell nobody, not even my parents. So the only person I told was the girl I worked with, I told her, I said, I'll have to resign next week, I'll have to hand in my resignation because I'm getting married. So I think she was a bit taken aback. So I went down to the director and I said to him, "Uh, Mr. Lucas, uh, I want to hand in my resignation. And he said, "Uh, why, Miss Solkeld? He said, um, I said, well, I'm going to another job. Well, he said, do you mind me asking you, he said, "Uh, do you is there any uh, financial improvement in your new position
7: <laughs> which i thought was
11: rather good <laughs> so i said well i'm not quite sure or words to that effect so uh, the following week anyhow we were married down donnybrook at about half past seven in the morning and there were only a few uh, of my closest friends at it and my my own parents and people have often asked me why why did he not tell his own parents he was getting married wasn't it strange well, I don't know, I suppose he felt that if he told his parents he would be obliged to invite all his relations and that would involve me in a lot of, um, you know, things for the reception. and Maybe that was it, I don't know. But the day we were married anyhow, we called up to see Kathleen, his mother. Stephen was out at work and she was coming down the road with her shopping bag and my father was driving the car and Brendan and I and... Celia and the best man, Reg, were in the car. So we just pulled up and he said, come on now, Mother, get in, we're going for a jar. And we went up to Kennedy's of Harald's Cross where we spent some of the morning. And uh, then we were taken off for England that night. So we went down to Bewley's, just the two of us. So he hadn't even got the tickets, so we had to go downtown and get the tickets. And uh, earlier in the day, he had hired a cab and we went around calling. I didn't know at the time, he was calling at all his various relatives, I suppose looking for little financial assistance for the, for the trip to France, so we went round in the cab and I remember we finished up in the Lincoln's Inn and there was an old fiddler outside and Brendan said, come on now, play the coolant. So the fiddler played the Coolin, and Brendan sang and all the office windows flew up all around Lincoln's Inn there and all the girls were hanging out while Brendan sang the Coolin, and it was one of the, the finest times that he ever sang it in my opinion because he, he could sing it beautifully, you know. So he proceeded from the Lincolns Inn. Then he discovered that he would no passport so he went. He got a taxi and he went back to Kildare Road and uh, his mother gave him out his passport and two rather grubby shirts and that was most of our luggage. So we set forth then on the B&I. We went into the bar and we had more drinks. I went off to bed and I left him singing in the bar.
10: I will bake you a big pork pie and hide you till the cops go by If you'll marry, marry, marry,
0: marry. If you'll marry me. Shortly after marriage came success. The balloon began to go up. At first, it all must have appeared to be simply what Brendan had always wanted. Welcome into the world of books and writers. Even if, to begin with, it was the world of the theatre.
12: Joan Littlewood. He sent this play which I think he had... Yes, he'd just written it in Irish, the queer Fellow, and he wrote it very shortly after he came out of jail. And he said, ah, and I have a song in it that would draw the heart out of you. And the play came. And uh, it was quite thick. And he obviously hadn't read it back, and he got a few tea stains and beer stains on it. And I read about five pages, and it leapt off the page. One didn't have to read any more, and I sent a wire right away, come. We were very broke, and he wired back, and he said, I haven't my fare. So he sent his fare, and he drank it, and he said, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm saving up to be one. And uh, he was meeting some Toronto writers in Ireland at that time, in Dublin. And finally, uh, because we were so hard up, we managed to send him a ticket instead of the money and he arrived one Saturday afternoon in the bar downstairs where I just met you and uh, very shy came with a young painter friend and I walked in and I said well you were a bit late <laughs> and I was very very loath to do anything to the work because it was it, it flowed with all the things that have been since said about his magnificent writing and I didn't want to tamper, but I had had to do the first act without his presence. And I, we played it. I said, "Now come on." We were playing Edward the Second of Marlowe, and um, that's our Hanoi going. The kids are watching a show this afternoon. You hear? And he watched Edward the Second. I said, well, "Now tomorrow morning you'll see what we're doing with the first act." And he sat and he he laughed at his own jokes, and at the end, he said, "I'll be." Christ, I'm a fucking genius, (laughs) that was that, and I wondered how he'd, because he didn't bother much about stage directions like most good dramatists, he wasn't bothered about that. Um, It flowed from his pen and he left it till someone would bring it to life and let it grow. And that's how um, we came to play the queer fellow and how we became great friends and collaborators.
0: But this was to be no ordinary success, the reward of patient endeavour and the written word. The world soon discovered that Brendan was a performer as well as a writer and that he had arrived with a ready-made, much-rehearsed mythology. Hungry for myth, the newspapers took over. Brendan had always been expansive. He expanded now to fit the larger bill. Donald Foley.
13: But Brendan in those days, he was fantastically
0: funny you know he'd
13: come in every morning and he was entertained for an hour telling us about the night before and then he'd go over to the Moonies and he was surrounded always by journalists and he loved journalists so, You know, he loved talking to them and he'd give them plenty of quotes then he had his first night the hostage uh, I'll never forget that evening there were hundreds of people milling in the hall in the in, in, in the theatre being in the middle of the mall with his uh, dinner jacket on that night and uh, taking photographs and talking and telling stories waving their arms around him, he was fantastic for him, And of course the play was a, a magnificent success, it was a rave notice in every paper. And from then on of course Brendan was, everywhere he went, he was surrounded by journalists. And he was appearing in the gossip columns morning, every evening papers, Sunday papers, daily papers. And he and Beatrice were up and down the public Street every day, Beatrice following Brendan. Brendan, and, and uh, But it, he was in very good form then. And he wasn't spoiled or anything.
11: Well, this is purely a personal thing. It is that the happiest part of my married life was in the early days. I'm not saying that I didn't um, I didn't enjoy all the fame, because you you mean you'd be just a liar if you said you didn't enjoy going to the Sarah Bernhardt Theatre and seeing the audience stand up. You know that to me was tremendous. But um, for my own personal um, way of thinking. My life was happier anyway.
10: Oh, <laughs> my now, let us continue with the man said. I'll have to sing this song in an Oxford accent. You haven't any idea of my Oxford accent, well, you shortly will. I remember in September when the final stumps were drawn and the shouts of crowds now silent and the boys to tea have gone. Let us, O Lord above us, still remember simple things when all are dead who love us. So the captains and the kings When all are dead who love us Oh, the captains and the kings Far away in dear old Cyprus Or in Kenya's dusty land Where we bear the white man's burden In many a strange land As we look across our shoulder In West Belfast The school bell rings, and we sigh for dear old England and the captains and the kings. And we sigh for dear old England and the captains and the kings. In our dreams we see old Harrow, and we hear the crow's loud call. At the flower show our big model Takes the prize from Evelyn Wall Cups of tea or some dry sherry Vintage cars, these simple things So let's drink up and be merry Oh, the captains and the kings So let's drink up and be merry Oh, the captains and the kings I stumbled in a nightmare all around Great Windsor Park. And what do you think I found there as I wandered in the dark? Twas an apple half bitten, and the sweetest of all things, five baby teeth had written, Oh, the captains and the kings, five baby teeth. Teeth had written of the captains and the kings. By the moon that shines above us in the misty morning night, let us cease to run ourselves down and praise God that we are white. And better still our English, tea and toast and muffin rings, old ladies with stern faces, and the captains and the kings, all the ladies with stern faces. And the captains and the kings. I I wrote that song in six minutes with the assistance of. Uh, it was the first time actually that I wrote with drink on me, with the assistance of a bottle of whiskey and a manager, actually, who uh, threatened me with a forty-five revolver, if I didn't finish it quick. Actually, I did the job in six minutes, as I said.
0: Brendan beautifully illustrating his cooperativeness as writer and performer. He proved very cooperative in many ways, but he was, of course, cooperating now with societal and other forces which had their own necessities, hungers and
12: wishes. He got to, like... London, especially this London, if you can see what's left of it. Um, Angel Lane came into his songs. Angel Lane was a market, now demolished by the uh, Mafia, you know, the developer, gentlemen, um, in their war on the people. Um, it was Brendan's land, and the theatre was his. And in fact, my own home was his. Um, how long are you staying there, Brendan, they'd say, because it was his theatre. he He'd already liked here. It wasn't the West End it wasn't Broadway where I saw him shut out of his own place, because, to me, the show was also Brendan. Brendan sang his song in The Queer Fellow. Brendan stood up and harangued the English or the Irish during The Hostage. The thing about The Hostage was that it changed each night that Brendan put in the news of the day, that Brendan stood up and attacked, uh, as it might be today, with all this chat going on about the so-called settlement. Brendan would have got up tonight and had a go. And spaces were left for that. It was magnificent Commedia Dell'Arte, but the comedian was Brendan. The man who attacked the audience, one night he'd be pro this and next anti. That was Brendan.
13: It was so topical, The Hostage, they were changing it all the time. And Brendan used to go along and enjoy it every night. You know, they'd put in extra gags in it. After Princess Margaret going to, they had another gag, you know. And, uh, but uh, Brendan would come out then at the interval... And of course, went to St Martin's pub there, and all the whole place was surrounded immediately, taking notes of everything he said. Well, this is phenomenal. Of course, he was his own publicity officer. Then he went back in, and and he started to reply to the actors on the stage, took part in the whole repartee in the in the play itself, and eventually he went up on the stage and danced a hornpipe. Of course, this made every paper in the world practically. You know, he was a I think he was a natural publicist.
12: We played the hostage each night differently for what it was worth and didn't particularly bother about what was written down. And the tragic thing was that somebody, some, uh, somebody more conscientious than me, perhaps in, as a cleric, wrote down a very bad travesty of what was very difficult to preserve. That was his fantastic flights where Brendan stood on that stage and took over it was a committed, dell'arty piece.
10: I'm after starting up on something, I forget what I was talking about. However, this is not a bad one. Not a bad little number at all. I don't know where I got the years from, because I can't write music. I am a happy English lad, I love my royalty. If they were short a penny on a packet of fags, now they'd only have to ask me. I love old England in the east, I love her in the west. From Jordan's streams to Jenny's walls, I love old England best. I love my dear old Notting Hill, wherever I may roam. But I wish those bleeding nigger boys were town, out and put back home. A fellow asked me this morning, was giving me an injection, it was a, an Indian. And he's a coloured man in the sense that we're all coloured something. I, if you could only see me, I had to be coloured a bright red. Well, that's not me politics, but um, this Indian fella said to me, do I believe in mixed marriages? And I said to him, well, I said, all marriages are mixed. They're all between men and women, at least mine is. <laughs> uh, there's some more songs in this thing, if I could find them. Well, oh, yes, I was going to tell it. the GPO is the General Post Office. And it's a sacred place here because it was the, it was the headquarters of the the British Republican Army, in 1916, during the Easter Rising. Of which rising Lenin declared, I hope the record is not smashed at the point of mentioning his name, but he said numerous sensible things. One of them he said was, I come, he said, to abolish the village idiot. But another thing he said, he said the Easter Rising, there was nothing wrong with the Easter Rising in Dublin, except there wasn't enough of it. It didn't happen in London, Berlin, Moscow, New York and all at the same time. M's my colours. But um, this aunt of mine went up where her husband was fighting, and she arrived outside the general post office, and the English, with that sportsman-like sort of chivalry that they go in for, were shelling the, the GPO from Dublin Bay. And while the shells were landing, she went up and she said, I want to see me husband. Where is he? I said, go away, go away, you'll be blown up, you'll be killed. Said, I want
14: to see me husband anyway.
10: So her husband Julie arrived, she said, we'll throw us out a few pounds and a few postage stamps, if nothing else. So I was like I buy food for, for me child. He says, go away, Maggie, he you'll be destroyed. Get out of it, quick. And it was dead. Tommy's lying all over the place, and a few of our own sort too. And uh, at last she well she will you tell me one thing? Are you going to your work in the morning? <laughs> but the uh, typical of all these larks, whether Sinn Feinism or or um, Zionism or anything else of that sort, the uh, the big shots they sort of. They did all right, Adam. They rode in with Lord Baconhead. However, we'll get on with some more culture. You needn't switch off yet. You're not going to be tormented too much. I love my dear Redeemer, my Creator too as well. And all that filthy devil should stay below in hell. I cry to Mr. Eisenhower, please grant me this great boon. Don't muck about, don't muck about, don't muck about with the moon. Don't muck about, don't muck about, don't muck about with the moon. I am a little Christian, my feet are white as snow. And every day, my prayers, I say, for empire my goal. I cry to Mr. Krushkiv, please grant me this great boon. Don't muck about, don't muck about, don't muck about with the moon. Don't muck about, don't muck about, don't muck about, don't muck about with the moon. I cry on to Macmillan, that multiracial coon. Don't muck about, don't muck about, don't muck about with the moon. I cry on to Gaul, please grant me this great boon. Don't muck about with the Sahara, don't muck about, don't muck about with the Sahara. I couldn't get any rhyme for Sahara, neither could you.
0: Brendan doing his not inconsiderable thing for an international audience, as why wouldn't he, seeing he had always been willing to do it for any audience whatever.
15: He was, in a sense, I think, rather a throwback to an older kind of writer who was a kind of witness of the people, to the people, a kind of explainer to them, and, of course, very much at the same time, an entertainer of them in the deepest kind of way.
0: That was Colin McInnes. Here is Ray Jeffs.
16: I think he was very, um, torn in, inside himself over success. When he was in reflective mood, uh, of which he was quite often, he would say that success should come to everybody for a month and a month only, and then they should be allowed to go back to living their ordinary lives. Uh when he was being exuberant and boisterous he wanted more success and more success and more success but quite definitely a part of him knew that this was destroying him
15: i think that of course there was a a certain side to him that was an actor was there not one rather senses that for example uh, to mention byron once again that he was a bit of a performer wasn't he so was pushkin a bit of a performer um uh, balzac one senses was also a bit of a performer right and in that sense i think that brendan was that and quite legitimately and that he enjoyed doing it i think that also to some extent he felt that if this is what the, what the english want to see this is what they think i am i'll give it to them right but i think that is very far from being the uh, the entire brendan i wouldn't say it's not the real brendan of course it was because it was a part of him but i think it's very much from being the entire man and also i think that uh, he did um, do this uh, what you might call in English terms, comic Irishman performance on some occasions, not so much even that, that he thought that it was expected of him or that it would win him publicity or that it would win him um, purely fortuitous interest because, because it wasn't a form of mockery on his part. If this is what they want, <laughs> if they want this lunatic performance, all right, let's give it to them. And he gave them a very good one. And it was indeed fascinating to watch on this disastrous television programme I was talking about to see um, how the, the, the television technicians loved it. I mean, this is, this, is, this is Brendan doing his thing, and they loved seeing that. And I think he did play up to that, partly because he enjoyed doing it and did it very well at his best, partly because he felt that that was, that was what they wanted. And, and I think he also had a very strong instinct to please people, do you not think so? Yes, I think that I he, think he, has, he yes. wanted to, to make people laugh and to make them happy and to them enjoy themselves. But I, d- I, don't, I think he was very much aware of what he was doing. And this became very apparent but uh, when one, when he suddenly switched almost abruptly, almost in a matter of seconds, once he was alone or with intimate friends, uh, from the, the the public persona to, to somebody who really was rather quiet and rather almost withdrawn, which which uh, sounds almost the last word one to think of using of him uh, when one thinks of him.
16: You know, he was uh, there was such a mixture of clown in Brendan that I always. I look upon him really, the public image for me of Brendan is the the clown's mask, I can't help it. This is what springs to mind always, is this clown, this buffoon, who must live up to this reputation. And that if only he'd just take the mask off.
15: Obviously, his great success, coming as late as it did, did, I suppose one could say, in some ways, harm him. On the other hand, one does feel that he deserved it so much. He had, after all, and I think this is often forgotten... And does often explain a lot of his later minor aberrations as a human being he did have as a young man an extremely hard life after all it's not everybody is it who at the age of 16 is flung into prison for political reasons in a foreign country and who later on goes into prison again for political reasons in his own and i do think this harmed him in a certain sense i think that if you're a politician to do a stretch in prison, in a certain sense, is can be an enriching experience. That's to say, it can toughen you, it can harden you, you make contacts, you have time to think, and you come out in many ways, and there are, after all, hundreds of examples of this in every nation. You come out after this prison experience a tougher and more effective politician. But I don't think it's a particularly rewarding experience for an artist. I don't mean by that, of course, that I don't think artists are tough in their way. They are, too. What I do mean is that I think that particular experience for an artist can be a harmful one. To him as a human being and as an artist, rather than one that can help him in his creative work. And I always had the impression that this earlier experience of Brendan's, although it of course provided him with his raw material of his greatest works, didn't in a certain sense wound him, didn't really uh, help him to to, to become, for example, the grand old man in his 70s, 80s, that that he could have become. And at this point I would like to say, if I may, what I Uh, my chief, my strongest recollection of him is, which is that it's not so much of his being a great artist, and a great Irishman, and a great human being, and, of course, a great wit and a great entertainer in in his best moods, but particularly that he had an extraordinary animal magnetism as a human being. Now, this is a thing that very, very few human beings have. It's far from being a thing necessarily that only artists only have, or even that that only educated people have. All sorts of men and all sorts of women, of all sorts of different kinds, may possess it. But it is a very, very rare faculty. And I think that everybody felt, when Brendan walked into a room, or went into a pub, or walked into a studio, or wherever it may be, that the whole temperature of the room was heightened. Everybody felt that their own vitality was enhanced, was increased, that they were living more, more strongly by the very fact that he was there. And I think that this is one of the reasons why he had had a tremendous attraction for human beings around him, who did, unfortunately, rather suck suck out of him some of this vitality he had, I think, and, and make use of it in a way that wasn't altogether helpful to himself. A, a moralist might say, ah, ah, success ruined him. I don't think that that is altogether true, because I think he remained a very secretive and a very private man. I think not, I didn't know him well at all, not at all. My acquaintance with him was an extremely casual one. Nevertheless, I did on one or two occasions have him alone to talk to. And it was really like a complete transformation. The the public performance that he used to give, which was indeed a very splendid and sensational one, that vanished in a matter of seconds, and one found oneself talking to a rather withdrawn and rather secretive and even rather, what appeared to be rather lonely and rather serious man. I asked him, for example, of his, a bit about his prison experiences in the Republic, and this was no longer the, the person who was witty about this and who was... Uh, bold as brass about it and who was uh, tried to turn the whole experience into a, into a joke or into a fantasy. Well, I had the impression of, of somebody who'd been r- uh, wounded by this and who also had uh, felt very strongly about it. So that I think that uh, it was perhaps Brendan the Entertainer, which is only, what, a, a hundredth part of the real Brendan, that society, in a certain sense, made use of and captured, if you like. But I think that the essential man always remained his own man and had not been that he suffered from the ill health he did I don't think that uh, society would ever have succeeded in damaging him as it did in a superficial sense in those last years of his
17: his big success maybe he was debased in Dublin maybe he was debased in New York and France and everywhere else but I think London had a particular responsibility which I saw I think quite early and pleaded for um, to be restrained, the kind of vulgarity that uh, over-publicization, the kind of seeking for any kind of interview that many sort of TV uh, broadcasting or newspaper uh, things can offer, some kind of visiting fireman as he was. And he was perfect copy, of course, for the kind of Um, the sort of English journalist who's looking for a good Paddy story. He provided that absolutely, absolutely, totally. he knew it, too. But I think there was a point at which this could have been resisted, and at least he could have been checked by somebody, certainly not myself, I I didn't have the kind of position of authority to do it. But I did speak to the people who did have this position, who might well have done it. And thereafter, as I saw the kind of... um, the writing develop into the kind of tape recording, develop into the kind of uh, reach-me-down rubbish, I think, that he put his name to at the the end of his life. I just felt increasingly depressed by him. And although I used to see him now and again making one of his forays into London, I'm afraid that, I just felt that there had been an opportunity which had been really misplaced and lost
0: that was Tim O'Keefe. But it is not a tragedy as yet. These may be, in a deep sense, the days of truth. Fame on the scale on which it came to meet Brendan must pose appalling questions. But it cannot seem like that to him, living it from day to day. He is incredibly famous. He seems to command an attention which hitherto he had had to win with all his multifarious talents.
3: There was a great amount of joy in it for him, as there is for the alcoholic on the last weekend. He's living an enormous life of liberation and joy. Brendan lived that for a number of years, but of course he had to live the murderous hangovers and the rotting liver and all the rest of it as well. But if you consider, you say, did he have anything in life. Yes, he had five lives in the time that you or I um, (laughs) might have been wearing in a pair of new boots. I mean, consider, he was a a world uh, journalist. He had a column in The the People, was it? Uh, He was in and out with people of enormous importance. He he knew people uh, all over the world, like Astor, Lord Astor, all of these people he he knew. Um, He was a writer, he was a great talker, and he was a great drinker. And he was a great, if you like, lover and anti-clerical. Think of, I mean, it would take us years to work up any of these things. He he did it all in the course of, what, what, 10, 15 years? 15 years and then out like a rocket.
10: God bless the captain of the ship that's sailing along the voyage home. Make strong the rigging where the wind is wailing and guide his bows through the foam. And my can brandy, red wine or shandy, or oh, may his cargo never sink. Come roar the chorus, there's life before us while we still put our true trust and drink. Mar Nielsen Seal Show, Oxshon and Rea, Rodeki Tarno Slum the Hio. My chest Avrishin, Il Bathne Screener, November Tami, Prabsonol.
11: Well, I think one of the things he, he uh, enjoyed most, certainly the first, was when the play won the award at the Theatre de Nation Festival in Paris. Well, and he got this standing ovation in the Sarah Bernard, which coming from the Parisians, I think, was something, you know. And they put on a, a banquet in his honour. And the ironic thing about it was he wasn't feeling too well. And he said, all the times I was in Paris and I had nothing to eat. And he said, here is the most beautiful banquet today and I can't eat anything.
0: But if the banquet spread by the gods from which the invited guests must turn away is a classical metaphor, there are compensations. Liam Craig remembers. And he brought
14: me down to Kennedy's of all known Pleasant. It's no known as the hill, the hill Lounge. And he called himself cognac, as usual, had myself a pint. And he asked Mr Kennedy would he change a cheque for him. And... Uh, he, took a, he put his hand in his pocket and he pulled out a crumpled up piece of paper. You, it was like an, uh, an election handout You <laughs> that you'd read and stuffed in your pocket. And now Kennedy looks at the cheque, opens his glasses, walks over to the window. Oh, he said, that must have been, he said, under oh, no circumstances. He said, I haven't that much money in the shop. Well, he said, "Will you lend me £20 pounds on it? In the morning. Oh, I don't do business that way. Well, fuck you. He said, You won't do business with me anymore. And that's that. He went around to the Mount Pleasant Inn. And there was a fellow behind the bar, I can't think of his name. He had been in prison with him. And uh, he asked him, uh, Would he uh, lend him £20 on the cheque? So he went up to the cheque, said nothing. I said, I'm going to the telephone to ring the bank. And he, uh come back. He said, yes, he said, I'll lend you the 20 on it. And he kept the cheque. So we went off on a scout, the pair of us. following morning, he woke up in my front room, and he said to me, he said, Lame, I said, I had a cheque yesterday, what did I do with it? I said, you left it in the Mount Pleasant Inn. He said, thanks for the jays. you know where it is now. I know who has it. He said, come on. So the Mount Pleasanton is only about two or three hundred yards away from where I live. He went around and he said to your man, would you ever give me that tablet? He says, uh, yeah, here it is. He said, I'll be back in a half an hour. We went down to the bank. He called a taxi, he got the taxi, the barman to call a taxi. And... uh, We went down to a bank in Dame Street, and he walked in with a cheque. And he came out with a roll of notes, like a roll of toilet paper, or was so thick. Now, what was on the cheque, I don't know, I haven't a clue. He said to the taxi man, straight But we didn't have a drink, we went straight back to the Mount Pleasant Inn. Gave him man twenty quid, gave him five, gave a fellow who was sweeping the floor five, and another fellow who was just in having a drink another five. Then he went up to my house, and what he gave my wife, I don't know.
0: I suppose that up to now Brendan, like many another, had equated happiness with the thing he most wanted. But it is not everybody's opinion, even now, that he is happy.
17: His success was very brief. His success lasted I would think about a year if that and all the rest in fact was going downhill and uh, back peddling. It was a very unhappy life I think and this showed in his manners, it showed in his face, it showed even when he was at his most marvelous which he could be.
0: Brendan had been a very vivid person to very many people. There were some who had known him before who felt that that person was already gone or going, even when the days of fame had scarcely begun. Ray Jeffs met him early in the days of fame. She worked for Hutchinson's, who published Borstel Boy.
16: I think probably I first met him near the end. This is a terrible thing to say, but uh, I think the best of Brendan I never really saw. Uh, I saw flashes of it which made it very tempting. But they were so small, and, and speaking to his old, old friends, Desmond McNamara and Joe McGill and people, uh, one realized that I must have come in right at the very end. Uh, because as soon as, the, as soon as the press knew about Borster Boy, as soon as the world knew about it, as soon as the hostage was produced, they came within a week of each other. This was another very sad thing uh, from Brendan's point of view, because he was suddenly, you know, the two coming on top of each other, was really more than most people could stand. And he was just a tremendous success. And it was almost, you know, I I was clocking up appointments, you know. He was sort of saying, well, I'll see him at 10 to 10, and her at 10, and somebody else at half-past. Well. A man who loves to be in the public eye and who is, as you say, very gregarious. He needed people. This was really too much for anybody. It was bound to have gone to his head. He was already a diabetic. Yes, I do. I see it as a great tragedy. Because uh, while I do think quite definitely that some of Brendan's short stories... Uh, possibly the queer fellow, almost certainly Borstel Boy, will live. Uh, I don't think anything else probably will. I don't think so. Uh, I don't know about Anguille. I didn't see it, the Irish version of The Hostage, but I think it was uh, Sean Kelly who told me once that, uh, whereas the Irish version was a sort of Ironic little, simple ironic tragedy, rather beautifully expressed with no Irish folksiness and song and dance. The hostage had been made into a sort of rebellion free for all.
8: Uh, he was a very shrewd man, you know, and when he found himself listed with Yeats and Shaw and all that, uh, no more than anybody else will, he didn't believe it. After the
13: plays, when he had this fantastic said Brenda didn't think uh, that they were so great, you know. And uh, then we got this when they were applauded, uh, applauded by everybody, and claimed every, everywhere he went, he was Brendan being the greatest writer. And just before that, I think uh, Dylan Thomas had been a similar kind of success. And I think when they did see a bit of Dylan Thomas in himself, you know, he greatly admired Thomas, and he boasted to me that he met him once. It was almost a boast with him. I think that he felt a bit guilty about it all. One
18: morning in the uh, no, the uh, Chelsea Hotel in New York, I had come up on business. And of course, stayed in the Chelsea. And um, Brendan came down to the room at about six o'clock in the morning to the bedroom I was in and asked me, had I got a drink? Well, as it happened, I did, because no Canadian would be caught dead travelling without a bottle, such as a peculiar licensing laws in their own country. But I didn't want to give Brendan a drink. Again, I thought in those days that uh, if you could just keep me away from the drink, everything would be all right. And he he looked awful. It was the day after Hemingway shot himself, and Brendan looked really dreadful, and he sat in the armchair beside the bed. I said, Brendan, what are you doing it for? I mean, Jesus wouldn't be better doing what Hemingway did and get it over with than to destroy us all, all the people that love you, because really it was awful and he looked at me in these terrible bloodshot eyes and he said I am and you know it's all it's all a fraud one of these days I'm going to cop onto the fact that I can't write at all and when that happens the balloon will go up he didn't believe that he had succeeded he'd been told too many times by the wretches in Dublin that he couldn't write and wasn't the writer I heard him being attacked by friends of yours. Paddy Cavanagh, for example, who called upon him to get a decent and honourable job as a painter and buy us writers a drink. Brendan was very sensitive about his writing. In my mind, he was a great writer, because he could make make you feel. But he didn't believe it himself, and that's the truth of the matter. And when I asked him, when, in answer to why he didn't go and put a bullet in his head, he said, well, it's all right for you. You don't believe in the year after, but I'm not sure.
11: He said to me once that um, if I made enough money, he said, or if I won the sweep, do you see that little machine there pointing to his typewriter? I'd throw that into the liffy, and I'd say, God forgive you, Brendan. You know, I I couldn't believe that anyone with the talent that he had could just throw it into the... you know, throw it away. Uh, He said writing was a terribly lonely thing.
5: A writer's job was very lonely. Brendan's flaws went right down to the bottom of his personality, I think. There were cracks right through his nervous tissue. As soon as he achieved some measure of success and money, for the next week, or the next month, or the next year, or whatever it might be. He lost interest in writing. He would deny this, but he couldn't write. He tried many times to write, and had to be pursued with a tape recorder. Uh, I don't know if he ever set out to achieve anything except to fulfil his... Uh, his uh, rambustious needs from day to day. Certainly, as soon as he achieved success, money and drink, he stopped and wasn't able to take it up again because by that time the uh, the chemical fabric of his body had changed and uh, he was drinking too much and he couldn't write in any case.
16: Brendan Behan's Island, Brendan Behan's New York, and Confessions of an Irish Rebel are entirely taped. Uh, in the island are two short stories, which were not, of course, and a... which he wrote for radio which was not and also part of an article which hastened his death very much because it brought a libel suit on him uh, about a greyhound and it was called the abominable snowman and this was added in to uh, make the text a little longer of the tape it had already been published in Ireland and therefore we didn't think to have it read for libel that particular part and it bought a libel suit that went on and only died with brendan it sent him on three terrifying binges he never got any creative satisfaction out of the tape recordings he never he never i think without exception he never saw or read a line that he himself had tape recorded. He would not discuss it or look at it. Uh, Brendan Behan's Island, which I think everybody now knows was tape recorded, uh, was not edited by Brendan. He never saw the tapes. He never translated them. I did it. So that he can have had very little satisfaction, I think he was deeply ashamed. Uh, I remember once saying to him when I was provoked that, uh, you know, he was—he used to make him very angry when he was likened to Dylan Thomas. And I would say, no, you're not like Dylan Thomas, Brendan. Dylan Thomas worked till the very end. He had nobody nannying him. And the same as Scott Fitzgerald, these are two that spring to mind, they were able to perform right the way through. Uh, I really said it to jerk him up and he would always say, yes, well, tomorrow I will. It was always tomorrow.
0: And there was, of course, the drink. Up to a fairly late point, apparently only an ingredient of the myth.
11: People often said to me in the early days, like, um, are you, not, um, you know, does it not worry you? Well, I said, look, I promised myself two things that I would never certainly try and change Brendan in any way, or, you know, I might ask him to go a little easy on the beer, but... It never even occurred to me that it could become a problem. I didn't regard him then as having a drink problem. I just regarded him as a man that drank rather heavily. But it wasn't until the drink seriously affected his health that I started to get worried too. Because, as I was saying earlier, he had such fantastic health and vitality that for years it didn't become a problem. I think he only worried at night, as he said himself, that he was afraid of the dark, you know, afraid of the nights. During the day he was all right when there was company around and people, you know. But uh, at night was the time that he dreaded. Well, that was towards the last few years of his life, when he, he never went to bed, you know. Very seldom he would go out, he would go to bed during the day and go out all night. And I would have to go out sometimes looking for him or finding where he was. Well, I think, myself, that he used alcohol as a shield against life and against things that upset him. And things that people, you know, that a lot of people didn't realise hurt him greatly. One was... um, the legal action taken against him by his own friends. I think that upset him a lot. He tried on numerous occasions to fight against it, and the greatest fight he fought was in um, 1959, when he underwent this um, cure, which was a terribly savage and horrible thing, really, for um, drinking, you know. And I think one of the greatest disappointments was that it didn't really work. He did it much better on his own uh, before that, or after that. He did it far better on his own without any... He just made up his mind for some reason. Well, it was just before America that he, would, he wouldn't he would drink, and he didn't for six months.
0: We have now come, more or less, to the end. But Brendan Behan, while he was alive, had succeeded with the aid of certain forces, sadly outside his control, in creating a myth Of extraordinary dimensions. A myth has a life of its own and Brendan's myth shows no signs of dying yet. Besides, every writer, including even Brendan, perhaps especially Brendan, would hope to be remembered through his work. Here are some judgments of the myth, the man and the work.
6: I think he was very fortunate, he was very lucky. Um, He wasn't lucky in that his life was so short. That was terminated because I know he said that his happiest ambition was to uh, be alive on his 70th birthday. But it was a short life, but it was a gay one. Every, every, all the things really that Brandon wanted happened. Uh, and of course, that's the worst thing, as we know, that can happen to you. And that, that's getting what you want. It, it, he not only got it, but it ki- he killed himself getting it. But it filled his life. He ha- had success. He wasn't all that bad. Um, He had he had a ball. (laughs) I'll I'll say that I'll use that Uh, with Brandon. Fame was the spur. Fame was the reward. Fame was what he wanted. He wanted to be identified with fame and with famous people. He was he was really relaxed and at his ease with famous people. Um, I mean, here's an example. Who else but Brandon Bean would anyway, find himself in a lift in New York with Groucho Marx. And when Groucho Marx said to him, I remember at that time we were painting, we were um, making um, a night of the opera. And Brendan said, that's like Michelangelo saying, that was when I was painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I mean, this was the sort of thing Brendan took to, like a duck to water. And without any training, without any preparation, he was absolutely at home in this name dropping milieu of, of the great and notorious. And he, he had a glimpse of that heaven, and he, 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 d- he dwelt in it for a while. He had done everything else except produce the kind of the, uh, the entrance fee to the Valhalla of the great. And I think this worried him.
5: Oh, well, as I said before, it's a Chattertonian story, but it's not romantic in the same way. Uh, Brendan wasn't a gothic character like poor old Chatterton. <laughs> and he died a drink, which is a slower thing than arsenic. His death was a sort of suicide, I think, uh, since he knew the outcome, and was, I think, able to prevent the outcome from a few years beforehand. He uh, seems to have lost all will to reclaim himself More... More pointedly... uh, More centrally to himself... He lost his élan, he lost his verve. He lost his curiosity. This can only have been the chemistry of his alcoholic dissolution. I think that Brendan uh, was headed towards his end <clears throat> from the time when he found himself unable to act in company in such a manner as to please people, to make them laugh. He lost his nerve when his cloning became inefficient. He was more concerned about his, uh, about his ability to perform certainly. Uh, and he was concerned about his ability to write. At that time, I think he'd given up writing. He'd written it off as impossible. He'd tried to go on performing helplessly, horrifyingly, humiliatingly. He knew he would write no more. He told people, he told me, he told others that he, he couldn't write any more. was written out, finished. He tried to go on performing to the very, very end,
15: until, he, until they laid him flat as to whether he was a successful writer in the deeper sense that's to say a writer who made a lasting impact on his time and may do on posterity i would like to say that in so far as i have judgment i'm convinced that he was i don't think that is true of everything that he wrote but i would name two of his works which i, I, I cannot but believe will be listened to a century from now and this i feel i could say of very few writers of the 40s and the 50s and of our time and those are the queer fellow and borstal boy it seems to me that the queer fellow has a, has a kind of timelessness about it which is not so in the case for instance of the hostage which is a play rather set in a particular time in a particular place i think that in the queer fellow there's a gravity a poignancy a melancholy a solemnity at the same time a tenderness and a wit that make you feel that you're witnessing something that is not only of one time and one place, but which is for all time and all places.
3: In a way, I suppose, it is an
15: enormous
3: success. And consider also the fact that people will never stop talking about him from now till doomsday in Dublin, because he personifies everything in a strange way that every Irishman would like to be, even with the drink, even with dying of it. I mean, there are literally thousands of people here, if you gave them the opportunity to say, would you like to have a life of 15 years like Brendan, you know, start like a flame and go out like a rocket? They'd <laughs> probably enough of to say, yeah, I'll, I'll have that if they look at what they're doing. They, you see, that, yes, people will go on talking about him. He is Ireland, you know. He is the whole thing, you see. And that terrible, unformed genius about life—he is the whole thing. He's, he is actually a marvellous thing for a country to have. Now, once he's dead, actually, he's a marvellous thing for a country to have. You know, there should be there should be a statue of him—not that terrible thing that's in Stephen's Green by Moore, that hideous lump—but there should be a lovely statue of Brendan, not with his shirt open down to his navel, but. Brendan, as a, as a sort of personification, you know, a mixture of John McCormick and, 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 and all the leaders and, and, and the Gales and the whole thing, he, he could, uh, he should be there and people should, there should be a little holy light in front of it and they should put wreaths to it, you see, <laughs> as, as, a, as, a, as a great example, in a way. Yes, I think in that sense he was a great success.
19: He created a certain kind of Dubliner. There is a Bean Dubliner. Perhaps in some of his little earlier plays like The Big House and some others, the world of those old grannies and so forth, the world of Mr., not Mr. Brendan Bean, but Mr. Brending Being, that is authentic but I don't think he had any more to say, or that if he had any more to say, he would have dared to say it. I think there was a great deal in Brendan's experience which the pressures of society might have precluded him from saying, and which he would have liked very much to
5: say. Such a-
19: I think he knew a great deal more about the sexual world of Dublin, which is a very corrupt city, than he would ever dare, because he had so many allegiances that he would ever dare put down on paper. He went far enough in certain passages of Confessions of an Irish rebel, certainly. But he had allegiance to family, he had allegiance to wife, he had allegiance to his old comrades in the IRA. He had allegiance to whatever constituted the establishment. I think there was an element, perhaps, of moral cowardice in Brendan. I don't think I could go any further than that. I very much believe that the queer fellow is possibly the only play that I know of in the English language, which effectively, theatrically, and from the point of view of dramatic literature, exposes the true horror of capital punishment. Gabriel Marcel, the eminent Christian existentialist and dramatist himself, noted that when it was first produced in Paris. The Hostage, I have some doubts about, because there have been so many versions of the Hostage. There's been... I saw at least one touring English company do it, and its version of the Hostage was quite different from Joan Greenwood's version, Joan Littlewood's version of the Hostage, and quite different
12: from Hugh Hunt's version of the Hostage. But you can't say if he had lived, can you? Because from the moment I, there was this thing in him. You see, people, some people, we all work on our own death, don't we? We all work it out. It, it's, if we all live very carefully and kept our health, but we expend ourselves on our passions. And he would get so mad at when he saw injustice or or misery. Or you see, he burned himself out. He would go round the clock, 24 hours without sleep, without eating properly. When he would eat, when he would swim, when he would be happy with his wife or or get to the west of Ireland there, which he loved. Uh, that was all right, but he couldn't keep away from the thing that killed him, and that wasn't drink. It was <laughs> the horror that people live lives of quiet desperation, some his wasn't quiet, and he couldn't keep away from it. I don't think any sensitive artist can live without great pain. I don't know who's happy. I don't understand what it means. I think it's a very difficult journey and he helped a lot of people who were full of sorrow and, 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 and who had a hard life to live more happily. He did this here. He did it here and he did it in Dublin. I've seen it in Dublin. I've seen it with the poor. I saw the people who followed him to his grave. And, and they weren't the great, posh, showbiz people of New York and London. Uh, indeed, they were the poor and the ragged, and the people who said, "May he never get there." Diabetes is a is a nasty thing, and he'd hurt his his liver, his heart. But he was a fragile man. He was a man who, who, who whose hands were so dainty. He was a delicate man, a a delicate artist. That comes out in his, in his poetry. That comes out in many of the tender things written when he was young, which I don't think have been gathered together. Well, with fewer with Brendan, you could lose the world. It was, it was well lost with a man with such laughter and, and, and love in him. This, this... But, you see, the more people have of joy in them, the more of despair. The more, the higher the crest of the wave that you can swim on the lower you'll sink. And this is the fate of such men, from deep despair to great joy. That was his lot, and it was his daily lot. So call it what you will. That is, uh, why don't we say this? Why don't we tell people that life is hard? And the people who are such magnificent laughers and jokers are the people who suffer most. That's how I think it is.
16: Well, I mean, if Brendan hadn't been the soil, so to speak, of which this type of treatment thrived upon, this could never have happened. It just happened that, uh, I suppose, you know, the blame must rest fairly squarely on his shoulders. Um, but the, the, uh, the tragedy for me was that he was never happy. This was the biggest tragedy. Well, maybe, even if he didn't, uh, even if his works don't live, which I think, as I say, both of boy will, the man himself didn't gain anything out of it. Uh, he was a terribly unhappy person as far as I was concerned. I rarely saw him happy. And this is very sad when you have this great talent.
11: About a month or so before he died, he said, I thought a very tragic thing to me. He said, ah, he said, don't worry. He said, we'll be happy again.
10: I she she that's for lot that. There you have it